book of the month. Follow the link to buy your copy. It's September and our catechism classes based on the Heidelberg Catechism have recommenced. If you haven't got a copy of the catechism, then I would really urge you to purchase a copy and to keep it and to read it. It will be a worthwhile addition to any library. And a personal paper copy is probably essential for any meaningful study of the plain and practical Christian teachings that the Catechism contains. So for September, the Heidelberg Catechism will be our Book of the Month. Links to buy your copy at just £2.95 can be found on the episode notes during September. Or contact me by email. The email address is bob at bobmacavoy.co.uk September's Book of the Month the Heidelberg Catechism. When you buy a copy, a small amount of the price supports this podcast. Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. These three Hebrew boys would be now in their early 20s. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being cast into the fiery furnace. I've, I'm sure you have too. I've watched children sitting, paying attention as a teacher has taught them this, this wonderful story and enthralled them. And I've seen the same children looking totally bored out of their mind as they hear the story for the fourth time. But it's a compelling biblical narrative, isn't it? Let's get one thing clear. It's not a myth. It's not an allegory. It's an actual historical event. It is historically anchored in the Babylonian culture of that day. And yet because it reflects human nature, and because it reflects the despotic actions of tyrannical governments, and we seen a little bit about that last week, And because it shows us the true character of Christian believers under pressure of persecution, this portion of scripture is not just inspirational, it is instructing and challenging. So we're going to just look at this little end part. You already know what's happened. The king's angry. I suppose that's an understatement. We could say he's out of his mind with rage. After all, he's made a perfectly reasonable and simple request for a king. He's put up a statue, a statue probably of himself, a golden statue, and he has told everyone to bow down to the statue. Now, what's so difficult about that? What's so hard to understand? And after all, he is the golden boy. Cast your mind back to last week when we looked at chapter 2 of this book, we saw that he is the human embodiment of the golden kingdom. Isn't that what Daniel told him when he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the king's dream vision? And yet here's these three people, these three Hebrews, burning out of their teens. And when everyone else bows to the ground, When the praise band plays and everyone goes to their knees, these three youths have the utter temerity 
to remain standing. They refused to bow. And from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, they think that obedience to their God, to the God of Israel, to the God, after all, who he thought he had defeated when he captured the city of Jerusalem and sacked the temple, the God who was defeated in his mind by the gods of the king, the gods of Babylon, these people think it's more important to be obedient to that God than to bow to the king, to the ruler who can actually order their instant death. And he'd been reasonable. He'd given them a second chance. And instead of being grateful, there they are standing there, right in front of the king, infuriatingly insisting that no matter what he says or does, they will not bow down to idols. Nobody talks like that to Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king. He's the man who has life and death in his hands. So in chapter 3 and verse 19, we see his fury and his rage. He has been insulted in his royal majesty by these Hebrews. Look at verse 19. It was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed. Expression on his face has changed. That uncontrollable anger, that sense of indignation and outrage, finally erupted into sheer hatred. And you could see it on the look on his face. You can picture in your mind the snarl on his lips. The narrowed eyes, the furrowed brow, the redness of his countenance as his blood pressure soared. You can see the fury and you can hear the tone of his voice for he spoke and commanded. Sometimes it's not just what you say, it's the way that you say it that conveys the true intents of the heart. Nebuchadnezzar spoke in command. And I wonder if his voice was conveying the serious trouble that these men were in. He orders that the furnace be overheated. Seven times hotter than normal. There's no mitigation here. It had been modern days, of course, at a modern court. These three men would have had a solicitor to plead their case. Very often the role of a solicitor in such cases is not to try and prove that they are innocent because they'd already admitted before the king that they just weren't going to do it. It would be to try and get some kind of clemency, a lenient sentence, to point maybe to the fact that they had an unblemished character record to point that they were actually rulers in the civil service, that they had studied well and done well in their, in their university-level studies, that they had worked hard for this king, that they'd actually been rewarded by the king just in chapter 2 along with Daniel. They had an unblemished record. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't do mercy. 
He doesn't do clemency. He didn't reduce the tariff. He increased it. And in verse 20, he calls the special forces. He commanded certain mighty men of valor to come along and to arrest these people. These were the elite troops. These were the SAS of his day. And they're being called out to arrest three unarmed worshippers of God. And the death sentence is passed down from the throne. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are to be bound and cast into the burning fiery furnace. There's no hesitation. There's no delay. Right away the soldiers seize the three young men and the Bible makes a point which we will see the reason for in a moment or two, makes a point of recording that they were still in their clothes. Verse 21, it tells us these men were bound in their coats, in their hose and their trousers, and their hats and other garments. They didn't even have a chance to remove their hat or their coat. It was a case of get them into the fire and do it now. And he didn't care about the consequences those elite troops who took them to the fire actually were destroyed in the process of doing it. If you look at verse 21, therefore because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, have I adequately managed to describe the anger of this despotic tyrant against these believers because that's what I've been trying to do trying to get you to understand how much he hates them and what they stand for what have they been guilty of they've been guilty of obeying God And because they've been obeying God and not the government, they're going to be punished. What about us? You see, I don't expect that standing up for Jesus, when everyone else is bowing to the idols of this world, is going to make us popular. Here's what it did for the three Hebrews in verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Where are they? They're in the furnace of obedience. You will be in that furnace, and so will I. If we obey God instead of man, you will get sheer hatred from people if you refuse to compromise. You will be in the furnace of blind fury and hatred from the world. You will get cancelled. You will get hatred from people on Twitter. That's if you're still allowed on Twitter. You will lose Christian friends who just want you to be reasonable. 
You will get shadow banned and mocked and you will get called a dinosaur and you will get threatened. Or as happened to me just last week in a conversation that I wasn't even part of but a Christian was having a conversation with other people and these other people described me on Twitter as, and I quote, a tinfoil hat-wearing right-wing conspiracy theorist whose views would make a Trump supporter blush. (laughs) Thank you for your support. And I think in days to come it's going to get worse. We will be in the furnace of obedience. On the 10th of April this year, 2022, the Daily Mail carried a report about a Canadian pastor. You've heard about him. He was jailed for the crime of praying with people taking part in the Canadian truckers' freedom convoy. Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky, Polish extraction. He was arrested. He was taken to Calgary Remand Centre where he was placed in a small metal cage. I'm quoting here from the Daily Mail. He was not given water for a whole day and deprived of both his glasses and a Bible. He was strip-searched repeatedly, spent many hours in solitary confinement and was made to sleep on cold concrete. He was then transferred to the psychiatric ward at Edmonton Remand Centre. And while there, he shared a cell with a paranoid schizophrenic who told him that he had killed his brother with a machete. Pavlovsky was required to pay a £25,000 bail and a $25,000 Canadian dollar bail and a $10,000 Canadian dollar surety from his wife as well as a $2,000 from his son. Now that didn't happen in China. And it didn't happen in Russia. And it didn't happen in North Korea. It happened in Canada. And the man's crime was that he preached and prayed with people who the government didn't like. And for that, he was placed in the furnace of disapproval. Let's move on. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't content to have the three Hebrews incinerated alive. He wanted to watch it happening. He wanted to see them writhing in pain. He wanted to hear their screams. There there must have been a panel of some sort in the side of the furnace, for Nebuchadnezzar was able to look and to see what was happening inside. And what he saw in that furnace that day, shocked him to the core. I want to think about what he saw and what he learned from what he saw. What he saw when he looked into the furnace was that there wasn't three men in the furnace, there was four. So he called his council together for confirmation that only three men had been condemned to die. Look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake, And said unto his counsellors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king, it's true. There's only three of these Hebrews. But there's four men in there. And look at verse 
25. And he answered and said, I see four men loose. Remember what that when they were put into the furnace, they had been bound, been tied, maybe chained. And yet in the midst of their deepest, deadliest trial, their shackles are gone and they're free. I see four men loose and they're walking about. How could they be? Don't be thinking of the crematorium here. This wasn't a modern electric electric incinerator. This was stoked with wood and coal and fossil fuels, as they're called nowadays. If you believe that sort of thing. That's me with my tinfoil hat on again, you see. And um, how could they be walking about in red-hot cinders? And yet there they are, right before his very eyes. This hot fire blazing away beneath their feet and they're walking in it and they're loose and they're walking and they're unharmed. How is this possible? Unless it's a miracle. This overheated furnace would have burned them alive. Their skin and their hair and their clothing should be ablaze. They should be charred skeletons by now. And yet they're safe in the midst of the blaze. Back in Isaiah 43 and verse 2, God had given his people a very precious promise. He said, When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. By faith they quench the violence of the fire, quench the fiery darts of the wicked. What he saw, four men, Loose, walking, unharmed. But look at what he learned. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Was it an angel? Some texts simply read here, a Son of God. And the angels are, to be fair, sometimes called sons of God, messengers sent to comfort the believers. But was this one of these Old Testament theophanies? Was this a pre-incarnation visit of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God himself, the one who ultimately at the cross would walk in the hottest fire for us, would walk through the fire of God's wrath on sin, would bear in his own body all the wrath of sin for every man, and who would rise from the dead. Was it the Son of God himself? Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson. It was that when we find ourselves in the darkest of circumstances, when we find ourselves in the furnace of obedience, Jesus walks with us, as he did with those Hebrews. Matthew Henry puts this in a lovely way. He says those that suffer for Christ have his gracious promise with them in their sufferings. 
even in the fiery furnace, even in the valley of the shadow of death, and therefore even there they need fear no evil. Hereby Christ showed that what is done against his people he takes as done against himself. Whoever throws them into the furnace does in effect throw him in, for I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Here's the message. Every one of us, if we're faithful to God, and if we refuse to bow to this world idols, and if we stand for him when the rest of the world is bowing, we will be hated by this world. And yet, he walks with us. Jesus goes through the furnace with us. Just as he did with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And looking on, the king is jolted out of his self-generated, ego-driven rage. His mind blown by the power of God to save and preserve his people. Cries out to the furnace keepers. To quickly quench the flames and bring the men out alive. Why is there not revival in our land? Why are people not realizing that there is a God who is able to save? Could it be that it's because the church is bowing down with the world? Could it be because the church is seen to be no different than the people of this world bowing to this world's idols? Because Nebuchadnezzar was shocked when he saw that even though these young men didn't bow, that he did not have the power over them that he thought he had, that there is a God who is mightier than he and who walks with his children through persecution. Well, let's finally look at the state of these three men as they come out of the furnace. and Look at how the king reacts to their preservation by God because there's no evidence of harm on them. So complete was the protection that they had experienced while they were in the fire that there is no sign of any fire damage at all. Look at verse 27. And the princes, governors and captains and the king's counsellors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power nor was an hair of their heads singed neither were their coats changed nor the smell of fire had passed on them. There's no evidence of harm whatsoever. Her singes, it singes very easily, yet it's untouched by the flames. Clothes burn quickly. And yet, these Hebrews had been cast into that fire, as we noted, wearing their garments, which should have caught fire immediately. There was no fireproof cloth in those days, yet their clothes are still upon them and they are undamaged. And if you stand anywhere near a fire, you'll reek of smoke, won't you? Especially a big fire. Especially if it's on the 11th of July and you're at the bonfire. And the 
smell of smoking, burning pallets, and whatever else is in it. And you go home and you sit down and you take off your coat, you can smell the smoke still in your clothes. There wasn't a whiff of smoke in those Hebrews. God's preservation of his saints is always complete. It's always comprehensive. When he walks with us through the fires of persecution, he brings us through intact and untouched. Now hold on a minute. Because some of you might be thinking that can't be right. Sure it can't. Because there are people who have been persecuted to the point of martyrdom. Of course there are. But didn't Job say, even if he slay me, yet will I trust him? It may well be that our God in his sovereignty will decide to bring us safely to our eternal home. It may well be that in times of persecution, God will look upon us and he will bring us out of this world and preserve us through Jordan until in heaven we rest safe in him, unharmed and intact in his immediate presence. One day to have new bodies like unto Christ's glorious resurrection body in a new heaven and a new earth. Or it may be that he will leave us in this world and bring us through as he brought Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego through. But the effect upon Nebuchadnezzar is profound. The arrogant, blaspheming, self-interested king is brought down and humbled and forced to acknowledge the wonderful works of God, his greatness and his power and his ownership of everything in this world and his care for all his people. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. He's not a Christian yet. He's not a believer, not just yet. We need to wait to chapter 4 to see that happening. He still needs more humility. He, he needs to be brought to his knees so that out of the depths he will cry out unto God. But right now he's learned a valuable lesson. That there is a God who is more powerful than he is. And who walks through times of difficulty. Who walks with his people. Even when they go through the furnace of obedience. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. 
subscribe, and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.